0: Welcome to SBNM is Here, the State Bar of New Mexico's official podcast. In this series, we'll discuss topics such as professional development, tools of the legal trade, and mental and professional well-being. Connecting the legal community across New Mexico, SBNM is Here. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to SBNM is Here. This is Morgan Pettit, member services manager and podcast producer. (laughs) So I know I start every episode with how thrilled I am. I I guess you can say I'm perpetually excited to provide you new types of content and information. But for this episode, I think it truly adds a new layer of excitement to the podcast series, because we'll learn about a new chapter in New Mexico's history, and that is the legalization of cannabis. In this episode, we'll hear from members of our own cannabis law section and the executive director of the Cannabis Chamber of Commerce. They are covering the wide scope of House Bill 2 of the 2021 New Mexico Special Legislative Session. So, Carlos, feel free to take it away, and we're excited to learn.
1: Morgan, thank you for that introduction. I want to welcome everyone to the Cannabis Law Section's podcast on New Mexico's cannabis legalization. Very excited, uh, very pumped up. Uh, My name is Carlos Martinez. I'm the chairperson and founder of the Cannabis Law Section. Also today's host, uh, I have two great guests with me today. Uh, One is a current member on the board of directors for the cannabis law section. Uh, He's also a former presenter at last year's CLE, a fantastic cannabis law attorney, and probably arguably one of the best uh, beards in the law game today, Mr. Brett Phelps. Thank you, Brett, for coming with us today.
2: Hey, thanks for having me here, Carlos. Glad to be doing it.
1: Awesome, and then also with me, we have the executive director of the New Mexico Cannabis Chamber of Commerce, uh, played an instrumental role, I believe, in helping this legislation go through the special session. Uh, a highly mediocre golfer, but a very good friend, Mr. Ben Lewinger.
3: Thanks, Ben. Thanks, good morning, everybody. I'm also here for Brett Beard and for <laughs> nothing else. <laughs> so, uh, New Mexico's going
1: recreational, finally. Uh, it's been a long time coming. Um, I'll be honest, I, I didn't think that it was going to make it, especially after it's stalled in the regular session. Uh, but lo and behold, the Brain Trust in Santa Fe were able to get it done, very thankful for that. Ben, what are your first thoughts and reactions on the new legislation?
3: Uh, I'm, I'm excited. I think it was a coming together of lots of really good ideas, uh, lots of hard work from the executive branch and from our, our legislators. And like you said, Carlos, I'm pumped. I, I think this is the critical first step where we can really start to build out this industry. So I'm excited. Fantastic. Brett, same question to you. First thoughts and
1: reactions on this uh, new legislation.
2: I, I am thrilled. Yeah, I think it's, it's fantastic. Um, you know, this is this moment. This is why I became a, a lawyer was to work on cannabis legalization. Um, started, you know, up at the Roundhouse Lobbying on these issues back in in law school, um, have watched over the years as the as the conversation has kind of shifted um, as the the growing acceptance. You know, with the the new legislators that came in this year, I was really hopeful um, for the chances. It was it was a little disappointing to see how it went down at the end of the regular session, but lo and behold, they, they got it done. You know, I was, I was really, you know, it's, it's kind of cool to say that we called a special session, brought our legislature back after they went home. Um, they brought them all back to, to work on this one specific issue, you know, so that was, you know, it's cool to see and was, was really happy to see it happen. I, I like a lot of the components that are, that are in the bill, um, both for individuals as well as for the, the industry, So I'm, I am pumped, you know, give a lot of credit to, to representative Javier Martinez, who's been working on this issue for years, uh, as well as a ton of other people up there at the, at the legislature who have, have really made it happen. Um, thanks to Ben for his advocacy efforts up there uh, and everybody else that worked to get it done. But yeah, I'm, I'm excited. I think there's a lot of good opportunities. Um, for, for businesses of of all sizes, as well as for, um, for personal consumers. So yeah, really, really pumped about the whole thing. I like how, you know, I'm glad it finally happened and, and the way that it went down. I think it, uh, I think we got a, I think we got a pretty good law here.
1: So what do you think this is going to do for New Mexico, whether it's, you know, for its economy, for its current crime rate and its opioid, uh, issues or, or some other facet for New Mexico, Ben?
3: Oh, so many things. Uh, We can start with the economic impact. We're talking about 11,000 new jobs. We're talking about uh, a new industry that in its first year could bring 30 to $40 million uh, of revenue to the state. And that's going to be recurring revenue, which continues to grow year over year. So, uh, you know, a key component in helping the state move away from the boom and bust cycle of our dependence on, on oil and gas. Um, and I think it is gonna start to undo some of the harms of the the war on drugs, which uh, is demont's really racist and you know based in um, based in making immigrants look bad and and based in um, you know kind of frankly, I'm just gonna say the thing based in white supremacy. so I, I think that, uh, doing it the way that we did it, which is legislatively. And we were, we were set to be the third state to do it. I think we were the fourth because New York beat us to the punch by a few hours. So we, we took the hard way of legalizing cannabis, which is to do it legislatively instead of via ballot measure, which we really don't have a good mechanism for in New Mexico. And the, the result is we were able to really fine tune, um, this legislation to to be what's right for New Mexico across several different spectrums right across economics across uh socioeconomic uh across you know creating genuine and authentic opportunities for for New Mexicans to enter into the business and and be successful and um you know uh, again this This was the work of Representative Javier Martinez, Representative Andrea Romero, Representative Debbie Armstrong, but so many other legislators. There there were three pieces, three distinct bills that were introduced uh, originally, two two introduced by Democratic lawmakers and one introduced by a Republican. And and what we saw through the process of the, the regular session is the best components of all these different bills, the, you know, the best thinking around how to make a a recreational cannabis market in New Mexico work for New Mexico kind of of came together. And, you know, you, Carlos, you said uh, we were all disappointed when it stalled out in the the 60 day session. And I'm just so grateful and proud of our governor for calling this special session and, and putting cannabis on the call because really this is a really incredibly difficult thing to do, and we just ran out of time at the end of the session. And I am um, completely excited um, for, for this bill. It, it does the, the crucial first step of, of legalizing cannabis, which you know the real work starts now. There's gonna be future pieces of legislation, a lot more discussions um, in the roundhouse and in the legislative session, and uh, a lot of work from Regulation and Licensing Department Superintendent Linda Trujillo and her team in the rulemaking process, and uh, we've gotten over this this first hurdle. And I, I think it means uh, a lot to New Mexico that we're not, you know, we're not at the uh, at the very end of the line. We we lost out to Arizona. Uh, Mexico is about to legalize. Of course, you know, Canada is uh, about to. Canada has already uh, had a legal cannabis market for some time. So. Whereas our, our state is, or our country is gonna be the last in North America to legalize cannabis on a, on a federal level, New Mexico is not left behind. And we have this opportunity to uh, really create a recreational cannabis industry uh, before it's federally legalized so that we can make sure that we know what's gonna be working right for New Mexico, not only when we have our first sale uh, in. April of next year, but for the next several years as we continue to, you know, roll back prohibition on this plant that has been made illegal for uh, nefarious reasons. I'm excited. Brett, I I believe you
1: practice criminal law up north also. Um, I think you're in uh, Las Vegas, New Mexico. Do you think that this new bill will have an effect on the drug offense type cases that you've seen or dealt with in the past?
2: Uh, yes, and I, I do. Um, I, I first wanted to second everything Ben said about the the bill itself and, and particularly in regards to the the criminal justice side and the, um, the impacts there, you know, one of the things that, uh, I, I think is, I, I think kind of twofold, right? I think there's some good research out there, um, that, that when people have have access to legal cannabis, um, they, their use of, of opioids um, and potential problematic use can go down. So I think there's a potential to um, to help our out, our health outcomes from from that sense, but also from a from a criminal defense standpoint, something that I think is is really critical in in this bill um, that was really great to see it make it in there is the the issue of probable cause and. Um, like, like Ben mentioned, you know, the, the racist war on drugs that we've been dealing with in this country for, you know, almost a hundred years now, um, the, the odor of marijuana is something that any, any criminal defense attorney, um, has seen too many times in police reports as a justification, um, for, for essentially police harassment. You know, if the, if, if officers, pull anybody over, or stop anyone on the road. And they say, you know, there was an odor of marijuana. Um, that's kind of a, uh, a ticket to, to search or to, um, to to get into people's business in a way that they are now going to be legally protected from. So this is an issue that criminal defense attorneys we had, we had been in discussion since, um, since it was decriminalized recently about the, the legal arguments there. And now it's very clearly written out in the law um, that the odor of marijuana, in, except for DWI, which is still, you know, still reasonable for a DWI investigation, it can be used. Um, but if there's no allegations or concerns about, about drugs driving, um, that the odor of marijuana itself is no longer a basis for a search. Um, so that's going to, you know, protect, particularly racial minorities. Um, And, uh, and, and so I think that there's, I think that there's a lot of upside for that. Um, And then additionally, you know, a a major part of this is, is to, um, to deal with the illicit market, right. And how to, how to um, provide legal access and giving people legal access to, to cannabis um, will really, yeah, that's, that's going to do a lot in terms of the bigger picture of, um, you know, crime, crime and the the fact that it's no longer a crime to go and, and buy cannabis or to grow your own. I, I think that's another really critical um social justice and, and racial equity component to this bill. Um, that I was really happy to see, you know, as this legislation has kind of evolved since it was first introduced several years ago. Um, you know, home grow, even last year when things were very close to passing. The home grow was something that got axed as a uh, as sort of a compromise. And this year they, you know, Representative Martinez, Representative Romero and the rest of them that were on it, they they weren't willing to compromise on that this year on the bill that actually passed. And so I think that that is a critical component in terms of, um, you know, people's own people's own privacy and liberty to do what they what they want in their own homes and to to not be criminalized for that. Um, so, so I think there's a lot of a lot of good um, elements in, in that sense uh, in regards to, to the criminal side of things. Another thing I'd really like to point out is um, one of the big issues in, in le- similar legislation in other states that's passed previously has been uh, this whole idea of felony exclusion for, for people to get involved in the legal market and people who had been convicted, you know, of, of marijuana trafficking, right. Or or possession with intent to distribute, uh, in the past in, in other States, you know, that had been an automatic disqualifier for them to be able to, to obtain a license. Whereas in, in this New Mexico legislation, um, it's it's no longer fel- felony convictions are something that can be considered which i think is very reasonable but they're not an automatic grounds for exclusion um and there's and there's specific language in here about allowing people who have been um you know who have been been victims of the war on drugs and have faced the the worst consequences of that um to have an avenue into the market so so i think that's just another thing to consider in the criminal justice side or social justice component Um, that I, I really credit the lawmakers for, for getting that in there and and making that, you know, um, for, for somebody who's, who's been doing this illicitly to, to have a, to have a means to enter a legal market, I think is, uh, is really important. Much agreed. So
1: this, this is kind of open to both of you. I mean, there's always going to be naysayers, you know, negative Nancy's about the bill that's coming out. What stumbling blocks, um, or resistance have. Have you experienced or, or what do you see the issues towards the implementation of all the rules that need to get you know drafted up are going to be facing here, coming up soon?
3: So I, I think the, the two things that we're hearing a lot about, you know I, I, um, I'm the executive director of a statewide cannabis association. So we often look uh, at the issue through the lens of workforce development, through, through economics, um, and through you know supporting businesses and, and bringing new businesses into this industry. So, the the two big things that that we keep continue to hear about is uh, maintaining a, a drug free workplace, and that was something that was included in the bill. New Mexico is a, a state that is heavily reliant on federal funding between Sandia and Los Alamos National Labs and Kirtland Air Force Base, and uh, while cannabis is still hopefully not for too much longer while it's still a, a schedule one drug and incredibly illegal federally, um, there, there has to be a way for businesses to maintain a, a drug-free workplace until we see a, a federal legalization. So I was really grateful that um, other chambers of commerce across the state uh, were, you know, were very vocal and, and supportive um, of that measure. And I, I think in New Mexico, and I, I come from substance impaired driving. I'm the former executive director for Mothers Against Drunk Driving. I, I'm the, the chair of the Bernalillo County DWI um, Planning Task Force right now. And I think a lot of people, mostly because of the, the history of DWI in New Mexico, people are a lot of, uh, there's a lot of concern about the substance impaired driving component. And I think the the discussion there is the technology hasn't caught up and I would argue um, as somebody who's done a lot of research and and really at a at a point in time was kind of at the forefront in uh, different different technologies to to test for alcohol impairment, I think that we're never going to have uh, a chemical test or a, a scientific test to test for cannabis impairment. And um, you know, and for alcohol, we have this presumed threshold where the majority of the people are impaired enough that they, they shouldn't be driving. And you can determine that from a blood draw or a, a breathalyzer, but it, do, it just doesn't work the same with cannabis. People can have THC in their system for weeks, if not months after ingesting. And there's a, a much bigger divergence in um, how much cannabis people can consume or smoke before they're impaired. So, you know, if you think of a cancer, a cancer patient who's taking, you know, four grams of RSO or, you know, some high dose of, a a really, um, a really powerful cannabis product, they may not be impaired at all. Whereas somebody who is not a cannabis user could eat a, a five milligram gummy bear and probably shouldn't be behind the wheel. So I think, um, one of the things that came out in this bill is really designating funding for those drug recognition experts, which we have, I think, three or 400 of across the state now. And and these are people who are specifically trained. It's a a certification the law enforcement officers can can add. They're specifically trained to do, you know, different versions of a a standard field sobriety test looking specifically for non-alcohol impairment. And I think that's going to be Uh, You know, ensuring that we have more drug recognition experts, ensuring that we have funding for those kind of programs is how we're going to alleviate concern about substance impaired driving. But I also think cannabis is just different from from alcohol. I I think there's, uh, you know, whereas people can get behind the wheel after going to a bar and, you know, best laid plans to use a, a ride service or to take a taxi after several drinks, people feel empowered and they they make the call on their own that they're not impaired um, to drive. I, I just don't think that happens with with cannabis. We we don't have people going to bars and using only cannabis. There, there is a provision for cannabis consumption areas, which I hope we talk about uh, later in this bill because I think it's a, an interesting component of this bill. But I, I think um, there's a lot to do to uh, kind of unpack the the fear, irrational and rational of cannabis impaired driving and the, the impact that's gonna have in New Mexico. And I think part of that just starts with giving up with this idea that we can test cannabis impairment with a blood draw or that there's gonna be some technology similar to a breathalyzer at some point because I just don't think there will be. Brett, what uh, stumbling blocks do you foresee?
2: Yes, um two two big things that I think actually were were also uh, addressed in the, in the bill. The number one is protection of the the medical program. Um you know, over the years the the medical program has had major issues with supply and and shortages of of medicine. that um, that largely is not the fault of the of the producers, right? There's just strict limits on this on what the state has allowed um, which has, you know, historically led to to shortages and, and it's, it's gotten better in, in recent years, but I do think that there's, you know, very legitimate concerns from longtime patients in the program that have have seen the way things have gone and and are concerned that if the state, you know, um, goes to, to adult use or, or commercial, commercial cannabis, I like how they use that term, um, in the legislation that, that that's going to negatively impact the the medical program. So there are provisions, I, I believe that I, that I think um, address that to some degree, you know. And it's just going to kind of people are just going to have to see for them, themselves, you know. But I, I do believe that the intent was to protect the the medical program, and that you know some steps were taken um, for that. The the other issue, um, kind of co- kind of coupled together is uh, is. The rural versus versus urban kind of divide in in New Mexico. Um, and how you know people are, yeah, the one that that the rural agriculture community could be left behind in this in this industry um when, when there's a great opportunity. So there are specific provisions in the bill um to to develop programs to encourage rural participation in the in the marketplace, which I think is is really fantastic. And I think as they develop these rules, that it's good that. It's in the statute that they have to consider this. Um, if you look at the concentration of, of medical dispensaries right now, they're highly concentrated in Albuquerque, Santa Fe. Um, but even that has improved over, over time as well. Um, you know, I, I live out here in a, in a rural area and, and our access has, has improved. You know, there's more medical dispensaries here um, than than there had been. And, and I think that there's, there's language in the bill that they have to consider that when they're crafting these rules. And the other part that I think ties into that is this idea of local control. Um, And some of these, some of these very, uh, very conservative places in rural New Mexico are not going to be allowed to just flat out um, bar cannabis, legal cannabis businesses from existing, right? And I think that that was a really critical part of this legislation. I think you saw that happen in in Colorado, you know, there were places that even though it was legalized statewide, they they just said, nope, we're not having it in our town and there's nothing you can do to stop us. Um, and it's been a long uphill battle for them to kind of turn that around. Uh, so, so I think to, to give local um, municipalities, cities and counties reasonable restrictions on, on time, place and manner um, about how these businesses can operate, Without allowing them to just flat out bar it or say we're not going to allow these businesses at all, um, I think is is a really good way that this legislation has handled those those two concerns. Um, so those are two big stumbling blocks that I've I've seen in the years up at the legislature with people people really concerned, and I think this bill did um, you know did do some things to to try to alleviate those concerns. Fantastic.
1: All right, we're gonna take our first break uh, now and we will come back and talk a little bit more about the actual licensing, um, what's included in it, um, how to get into the industry itself, uh, and everything. So please stay tuned. Okay, welcome back. Um, Back here talking with Ben Lewinger. Uh, and Brett Phelps uh, about cannabis legalization now, as both of you can assume and imagine people are extremely interested um, in getting into the market, getting into this industry, a very early and budding industry when when does this even start? I mean, what is the timeline that we're looking at before anybody can you know start applying for these licenses? Um, what's the status of current license holders in the industry um, what type of licenses are there available for people?
3: So uh, there's, a, there's a calendar, a very aggressive calendar set out by RLD in this legislation to promulgate rules and they're going to start with production licenses uh, no later than September 1st. So one, one of the adjustments in the one of the later versions of the legislation was they changed all the dates to no later than. So um, hopefully, if uh, if they can be very aggressive with promulgating rules, uh, which is a time-consuming process, you know the the dates can be moved up a little bit. But no later than September 1st, they are going to open up production licenses for uh, new cannabis producers, cannabis micro producers, and then what they're calling the the legacy licenses. So medical cannabis producers in good standing with DOH, and the idea in starting with those licenses is you know we'll we'll get plants in the ground with several months before the first adult use sale so we don't run out of of cannabis on on day 3 and you know what we've seen in other states when the floodgates have been opened is you have lines out the door for for several weeks after so we want to be sure that there's an opportunity to build up supply not just on flour but also in distillates and other manufactured products which you Know cannabis takes time to grow, it takes time to cure, and then it takes time to manufacture. So those production licenses will open up in no later than September 1st, no later than January 1st. They'll open up the the full license, the, the full license tier as described in the, the legislation. So manufacturing licenses, courier license, testing facilities, um, all the other license types, and then the first adult use sale will be no later than April 1st of next year now there's a, reading the, the bill it says something in here about
1: micro businesses um, and, it, and it differentiates that uh, what what are micro businesses what do they include I guess and and what are any sort of limits or caps that they may be facing for that particular license type?
2: So the the micro business license um, was was one of the components that that Representative Martinez and the other uh, legislators on the bill were really pushing uh, to to encourage um, small businesses to be able to get involved in this. Right. Historically, when when states have come on board with with full adult use legalization, there's been a huge barrier to entry um, in terms of the the money that you have to put up up front. So, this is an opportunity to help level the the playing field there. And what it what a micro business uh, production license allows an individual to grow or, or a business to grow up to two hundred plants. Um, and if if you're going for the full production license, there's also some fees associated with each plant, uh, so that your your fees are going to scale up based on the size of your your operation. Um, but these, but these micro businesses, they're able to, they're able to grow up to 200 plants. Um, it's, I believe, uh, let me take a look here. I got the numbers right in front of me. I can give you the exact number. Um, yes. So the, for the, the micro business, they're looking at. $1,000 $1,000 a, $1, a year for their licensing and no plant fees on, on top of that. Um, so that's a, that's a very reasonable way to, to enter the market for small businesses, um, particularly people who, you know, if you're looking at a, a craft or a boutique kind of um, operation, right? I think it's very comparable to, uh, to the, the brewer's licenses and the, the small breweries that have, have really flourished in New Mexico at a small scale, right? We've got dozens and dozens of breweries around the state that aren't producing a whole lot, but they are producing really high quality. Um, so I think the micro businesses are a really great opportunity there with, uh, with low overhead. You know, I think that's a a great way for people who maybe have, um, been doing this uh on the illicit side that want to actually go legit without having to you know have a whole team of investors and a, and a huge infrastructure in place you know if you've got a small family farm um this is a, a really easy way to to get into that um i also co- commend the as as ben described it, an aggressive timeline on this um, to start with, you know, starting September 1st is when they're gonna start accepting applications. Um, now, whether that means, you know, it's it's gonna be on September 1st, that they actually put the guidelines out for what all needs to be in an application, or if that's gonna be um, hopefully hopefully well before that. And, and, you know, beginning of September, people are actually able to, to start submitting them and, and knowing what they need to do. Um, but but I like the way that they've approached this and that they're going to they're going to look at those licenses first, as, as Ben said, get plants in the ground, um, really try to get the supply side going um, and then deal with the, the retail and how you're actually going to get it to the consumers. Um, but if you if we don't have the production happening, it's it's going to be a mess come, you know, come April of next year when sales are supposed to start.
3: And if I could just, there there are actually two types of the micro business license. There's the producer license, which has a fee of a thousand dollars going up to 200 plants. And then there's also an integrated micro license, which you can grow. It's the same plant count, 200 plants, but you can also do like some manufacturing light procedures, no ethanol extraction, but you can make edibles and do other, um, you know, make other products, cold press rosin, other products that don't include the the highest level of of manufacturing. And those are $2,500 a piece. And they also allow for a single retail location. And you can add additional retail locations for $500 a year. And, you know, for a lot of people, I I think these micro businesses, that could be it. That could be your business. A a well-run micro business could uh, produce pretty significant revenue. And like Brett talked about, if you're already a farmer and you just want to designate some of your alfalfa land to either setting up a, a greenhouse or doing an outdoor grow this could be your business or it could be an avenue to the the higher tiers of of licensure so i, I think you know this was a, a really smart approach this is a a really smart way of addressing what in other states have been called equity licensing programs and it you know really creates those authentic engagement points and uh authentic Entry points uh for, for new Mexicans. And I'm I'm just really excited for these micro businesses. And uh at, at the chamber, we're working on programming now to help micro businesses uh to apply for their application, to do some, some mentoring type of, of programming with uh existing um existing license holders in the medical program. And you know, one thing that Brett said at the beginning, and then you just mentioned it again, this is really important because. There have been people who have been producing cannabis for years, who are amazing growers, amazing manufacturers, and they've been underground. And now that it's legal, you know, for for so many years, um, Humboldt County in California was like the the epicenter of of cannabis. And this little county was uh, supplying cannabis really for the entire country. And there were, you know, smaller grow operations in other states, including in New Mexico, but I think this is a really key part in how do we create a a situation or a set of circumstances where people have been good operators in an illegal market? How can we create an opportunity for those same operators to really thrive uh, in what's now a a legal market? And I think these these micro licenses are are a really well well thought out and well-intentioned tool to do that.
2: I I really agree with that, and and one thing I I was happy about too to see was uh, as I was going through this is that um, there's not a limit to the amount of licenses that can be in one facility um, or, or in one permitted area. Um, so so I think there's some real opportunities here for for micro businesses to kind of um, possibly team up or or be able to to utilize um, you know shared resources in that way. Um, if, if you have a centralized kind of distribution point or manufacturing point um, that, you know, similar, uh, similar to a to a food co-op or something like that. I, I know up in Taos, they have like a community kitchen, right, that, that businesses are, are able to, to use. Um, and I think with, uh, you know, there's there's opportunities there, particularly in, in these rural areas where, you know, you can get to some of the, the better economies of scale. Um, with, with multiple micro licenses, you know, in a, in a community. So I, I think there's just a lot of really, really good opportunities for people statewide to get involved at that level. Um, and, and either stick to it at that level, like Ben said, or if that's your dream to, to grow into something really big, you know, you can start with that. And if things go well, you can, you know, you can scale up to the bigger license, but I'm, I'm especially excited about, about those. I think that's something that has not been handled as well in, in other States. so a lot of, lot of credit to the, the people who, who got that in there and how they made that happen. So looking
1: at the, the provisions of the bill and the it looks like there's 12 different licenses or permits that they're gonna allow. I mean, number one is cannabis consumption area. And I know this is mentioned a little earlier um, by Ben, but what is a cannabis consumption area? I mean, and, and what I guess are the benefits of it? What are the cons of it? I mean what exactly would I be doing if I was going to visit a cannabis consumption area?
3: Yeah, so I I think this is something that came up in this bill um, and representative Javier Martinez. So to answer your question, a cannabis consumption area is a place where people can go and consume cannabis. And uh, rules were promulgated for cannabis consumption areas in the medical program last year and we we have yet to see the first cannabis consumption area. And I think a, a big part of that is, um, at least for our members of the chamber, the, the operators in the medical cannabis program are scared of <clears throat> taking on the risk of having a cannabis consumption area. And I think a lot of that goes to, you know, to the DWI argument I was just saying. If, if there is any real danger of substance impaired driving from cannabis, I think it's potentially a cannabis consumption area where somebody who is inexperienced goes and consumes too much, and then they're not at home, and they, you know, they need to to get home. But Representative Javier Martinez raised a, a really excellent point several times during the session that these cannabis consumption areas, this is part of the the social and restorative justice of the bill. There are people who you know rent. Uh, there are people in transitional living situations who aren't able to publicly consume cannabis. They aren't able to consume cannabis uh, in their living arrangement. Um, And so this is a a really key part in opening up cannabis for for every New Mexican. And I know that there there probably are some some operators now and there there are probably some future uh, applicants who are interested in doing cannabis consumption areas for that reason. But also, we're we're starting to see these pop up in California, where that's like a, a boutique experience, where people, uh, you know, restaurant operators, bars are creating an experience around cannabis. So, say you you have a restaurant that wants to do a, a seven course meal for four twenty, and they want to do uh, cannabis pairings with their food, and and this kind of opens it up to that. So, um, I, I think this was kind of similar to home grows. This was one of the the inclusions in the bill that I, I think raised concern. I, I think it could have been maybe one of the poison pills that some legislators really latched onto and they, they didn't want the bill to pass for, for this reason. But hearing representative Martinez talk about uh, how these consumption areas are, are a social justice initiative. I'm, I'm really glad that they're included in there. I don't know if it's something that that we'll see anytime soon. Um, but as the as the industry in New Mexico quickly matures and continues to grow and there's more of a, a, an outcry and a desire uh, from consumers for these cannabis con- consumption areas, I, I think that we'll start to see people uh, apply for these license types.
2: Just just a couple things to add on that. I, I really like the Yeah. The, the way Ben kind of described it. One important to note that the one restriction on cannabis consumption areas is that they cannot also serve alcohol. Um, so that is, that is something that's key in terms of if you're, if you're trying to picture in your head what this might look like, it's not gonna be your regular, you know, raging bar scenario where they're also able to pass around joints or something like, something like that, right? It's gonna be a, a strictly cannabis, more similar to like a cigar bar, uh, type, type scenario. So I want to make sure that people understand that. Um, and also, you know, we're looking at this realistically, like New Mexico is looking to draw in cannabis tourism and, you know, people coming across the border from El Paso, from Amarillo, from Oklahoma. And realistically, right. This is, this was one of the biggest things that they ran into in Colorado when, when they first started adult use sales, there is, people would go there, they'd go to the dispensaries, they'd buy what they, you know, all the things they wanted to try. And then if they're staying in a hotel, most hotels don't allow smoking and almost all of them don't allow cannabis smoking. So they would they would have this product and they have nowhere to, to use it. Um, and so that leads to a proliferation of public cannabis consumption, which I, I think most of the the opponents of this bill would argue is a is a kind of worse scenario to have everybody out smoking it on the on the street or or in their cars because that's realistically you know the the place that they yeah where they are able to to consume. Um, so so I think you know particularly yeah people that live in apartments, people that live in in close housing situations, or people that just don't own their own homes might not have that freedom. Um, but also if if we're realistically looking at, you know, cannabis tourism as a, as an economic driver, um, tourists are going to need a place to consume. And, and so I think that, um, it, it's going to be interesting to see how these develop, because there hasn't been much traction on the medical side, although they did allow the rules for that. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see how different localities, uh, Kind of handle that, and, and the zoning. They they obviously they're going to have to to follow um, the the Indoor Clean Air Act in New Mexico, um, which which will provide a whole li- another kind of litany of challenges for people interested in getting involved in this. But I think it's something that it that is critical in terms of if we really want to a real be realistic about what our market is going to look like and and how people are going to be consuming these products to have a. A designated consumption area is is better for safety and and even in regards to the the DWI and that type of thing. Um, if you're in a controlled environment, you know the same way a bartender cuts you off when you've had too much to drink or or is going to you know pre- to have responsibilities to prevent people from driving or behaving in an unsafe way. Um, having a controlled cannabis consumption area allows that that same opportunity, right? You can have kind of eyes on people. You can see if people. Um, you know, how, how they're doing and, and kind of put a little bit more control on that um, or at least help people out that, that might need the help. You know, if you need to call a ride for somebody, it's, it's a lot easier to do that in an in a environment like that than if they're just out on their own.
3: I'm, I'm really glad that you mentioned the, the tourism piece, Brett, because we were, uh, you know, here, there, there were some numbers being thrown around um, and I think there was a lot of urgency and we saw this with the, the call for the special session to beat Texas, right? We, we had to legalize before Texas. There's legislation in the Texas house now that seems to be gaining some momentum. I'm not sure um, if it'll pass in the next year or the next two years. But if you look at the New Mexico's border with Texas and you think about going into uh, the state of Texas by 20 miles, the length of that entire border, it nearly doubles the consumer base for New Mexico cannabis. So um, that tourism opportunity, especially on the eastern side of the state, is is very very real. And I, I agree with you that consumption areas are an important part of that. And I'm glad you brought it up. So to all this talk about cannabis consumption,
1: uh, these retail spaces. How old does somebody have to be um, to come and participate in New Mexico's program once it once it gets going?
2: It's going to be 21, um, similar to to alcohol, um, except if you're enrolled in the medical program, which that's the way that's the way the program is now. Um, there are there will be still provisions if if you have a legitimate medical need and you're under 21, um, you can still become enrolled in the medical program. But to just be able to walk in in the store off the street, um, have to be 21 years of age, same as as selling alcohol. Right, they're very diligent in checking IDs. Um, that's, that's something that, that will be, you know, they'll have to take serious. It's not, um, there's, it's not something that they can, you know, say there, there's going to be eyes on these people and checking IDs and doing that in a legitimate way. is definitely going to be an important part of businesses being able to operate, um, would also, would also point out, and for people with those concerns that there, there are limits on, on marketing and advertising specifically, there are provisions that, um, Advertising cannot be geared towards children, cannot be designed to to market to children. Um, There's there's limits on on where advertising can go up. It can't be around schools or or daycares. Um, So so it is for for legitimate adult use. And 21 was the agreed upon age. They said if that's good for alcohol, that would work for cannabis.
3: Yeah, there there was discussion with legislators uh, between the the 2020 session and the, the session that we just got out of. About possibly having the age for cannabis be 25, because there's there's a growing uh, amount of evidence that you know some key brain development is still happening into your mid 20s, and that very heavy cannabis use um, can have some potentially harmful impacts on the the brain of you know a 22 or even a 23 year old. So there was discussion about trying to push the age to to 25, um, but. Like, like Brett said it just seemed everybody is used to 21 for alcohol and it seemed like that was probably the the easier pill to swallow and uh you know with adult use sales of cannabis that's going to create a lot of funding for uh prevention activities um in counties and municipalities uh, across the state to to do that education to to educate people that heavy cannabis use um And, you know, unless you're using it in a medical setting is probably not the best thing, especially if you're in your early 20s. So
1: how much am I limited to buying, let's say I'm Joe Texan and I'm coming into New Mexico to go get one of these, get into one of these stores? Am am I able to buy pounds? I mean, everything's bigger in Texas. I'm sure they would like to (laughs) take bags back. But I mean, what are the limits that are that are put on on consumers?
2: this one is going to be kind of interesting to see how it's promulgated in the rules, um, because there's not limits in the legislation about how much you can buy at one time. What there are limits on is how much you can possess in public. And that's going to be two ounces of, of flour. Um, for those that aren't super familiar, that's maybe two uh, Ziploc sandwich baggies full, give or take. Um and about 16 grams of cannabis concentrate, and I think 800 milligrams worth of THC in in edibles. Um, so it's important to note that the, the legislation was very specific about that's what you're allowed to have on your person out in public. Um, what you can have in your home is as long as it's locked away in a safe place, um, not available to public view. There's really no limits there. So I imagine the the sales. Um, they it, I mean it's not going to be more than two ounces it's not going to be more than 16 grams of, of concentrate um, whether they limit it to less than that I think would probably be more based on the supply side to start would be my guess if they're worried about supply issues they might limit it there but my guess would be you're probably going to be limited to something and if if supply is not an issue it, my guess would be a, a two
3: ounces but Ben, maybe you have Anything else on that? No, I I think, um, I mean, you said it, the the legislation is very clear, possessing uh, two ounces, 16 grams of extract and 800 milligrams of edible. And then um, there's no prohibition on possessing more. It just has to be kept in your private residence, not not visible from a public place. And uh, one of the TV stations went to a dispensary and had them lay out on a table What that amount, you know, what that looks like. What two ounces of flour, sixteen grams of extract, and eight hundred milligrams of edible edibles look like, and it's a lot. Um, You know, somebody could come over from Texas, uh, make a a pretty big purchase, and then, of course, legally they're not allowed to bring it back into Texas. But that's that. At that point, it's up to Texas law and Texas law enforcement to deal with that. But the the possession amounts. are are a lot, and I think part of that is, uh, you know, making sure that the the we're all making good on the governor's product promise of protecting and enhancing the medical cannabis program. So for some medical cannabis patients, uh, this may not be a lot. You know, this may be a, a week supply or a couple weeks supply, and it's really important if you're somebody who relies on cannabis for your medicine that you're able to take advantage of. Bulk discounts of of different sales, and I think uh, a lot of thinking went into um, these possession limits, and I'm um, I'm glad that uh, they weren't uh, they weren't more conservative like we've seen in other states. Yeah, just just one other little point on
2: that. I do think yeah, it's a it's a pretty reasonable sized amount, um, and I think it's also really important if we're looking at kind of the rural equity right. If, if I live out in Roy, New Mexico and I got to drive, you know, an an hour or two hours to get to, you know, a a dispensary, um, to, to be able to, you know, to be able to, to get yourself a, a decent amount of supply, I think is, is important as well. So I, um, you know, looking at it from that standpoint as well, I think these, I think these are pretty reasonable, um, amounts, you know, I think this is, uh, it's, it's more than what you were allowed to possess in, in Colorado when when they passed theirs. Uh, it was it was one ounce um, when they first passed that. So, um, so yeah, I, I would agree with all that. And I, I think it's I think it's a good a good limit that they set there.
1: All right, guys, we're going to take our second break now. Uh, we'll come back and we'll talk a little more on the social justice and social equity portions of the bill. Um, then we'll go ahead and close it out. <laughs> Be right back. All right, everybody. Welcome back. Thank you for sticking with us, the Cannabis Law Sections podcast, talking here with Ben Lewinger, the executive director of the New Mexico Cannabis Chamber of Commerce. Uh, and we're also talking with Brett Phelps, a uh, cannabis law attorney, criminal law attorney. Um Gentlemen, so with the new legislation, with the new bill, with the recreational, there's a lot of concern about the and Air and Compassionate Use Act either being left in the cold or or not being taken care of. What what protections um, in this bill uh, deal with, you know, the medical patients, the medical program
3: um, as it is now? So maybe I could start and Brett, and you can kind of fill in some of the details. I I think, New Mexico was the the first state to have a, a medical cannabis program serving 600 cancer patients back in the 70s and we have one of the the most robust and vibrant medical cannabis programs now in the country and I you know I, I want to be very clear above all else cannabis is medicine i I really reject the notion that cannabis belongs in the same category as alcohol or tobacco it's It's definitely an intoxicating substance, but for so many people, including the 100,000 people enrolled in our our medical cannabis program now in New Mexico, but also for people not enrolled in the cannabis who have been using cannabis illegally uh, to treat symptoms like um, not being able to sleep, anxiety, stress. I, I think cannabis above all else is medicine. And I think that uh, you know some of the provisions in here protecting patient supply. Um, I, I think that's really important. And I think it's important that also we don't be Pollyannish about what uh, the move to adult use cannabis means in New Mexico with the, the medical cannabis market. So first, you know, I said hundred thousand patients, but truthfully, the the medical cannabis program in New Mexico. Is serving more than 100,000 patients. They're definitely people who didn't qualify for, uh, you know, they, they didn't meet the qualifications in terms of having one of the qualifying conditions or otherwise just didn't enroll in the medical cannabis program. And medical cannabis in New Mexico still serves those people. So medical cannabis is serving a patient population now greater than 100,000 people. We also can't be Pollyannish that every medical cannabis state that has shifted to adult use. Uh, the, the numbers in the medical cannabis program in those states have declined. Um, and that's, you know, that's just because uh, sometimes it's easier than it's easier or more cost effective um, just to buy cannabis recreationally like everybody else. So I think the, the two big things in the bill are protecting patient supply. And there's a, a bunch of different provisions, including, you um, you know, making new license holders only cater to patients for the six months. Uh, Licensees can serve only the medical cannabis program, but they can't serve only the adult use program. So if you're a a license holder, you have to serve the the medical program. And the big thing is removing GRT and not charging this cannabis excise tax on on medical products. So the, the medicine will be cheaper Uh, And that's a really good incentive to stay in the medical program. I myself, I've been in the medical cannabis program for five or six years. Uh, I have a really aggressive form of autoimmune arthritis. That's my qualifying condition. And from my perspective, I will definitely stay enrolled in the the medical cannabis program. And I, I hope that we see enhancements in terms of uh, you know, different kinds of of products, I think suppositories, inhalers. I, I think there's a variety of products that patients uh, want and will continue to desire uh, aside from an adult use market. And I, I think there are definitely ways to continue to not just sustain but really enhance and and grow the medical cannabis program. But uh, we definitely expect to see a decrease in numbers at least initially because that's what we've seen. In every other state. So that, that should not be cause for alarm initially.
2: Yes, I I would agree with that. I think the I I think that the, the legislation does some things to incentivize people to, to stay in the program, specifically the, the taxes, and, and that'll be significant. There was a short period of time last year um, where a court had ruled that that those taxes were no longer required on the medicine and prices dropped substantially. Um, it was and another court overruled that and the taxes eventually came back, but there was a short period of time and it was a very significant difference, um, that you can, you can see there. So I think hopefully that will encourage people that are in the medical program now to, uh, to stay in it, to, to keep that afloat. Um, but, but also one thing that I thought was, was interesting in the legislation is that the, the cannabis control division, um, The the specific language is that they'll initially take reasonable measures to expeditiously incentivize increased production of cannabis plants to remedy a shortage of cannabis supply in the medical program. So they, um, you know, they want to not only incentivize patients to stay in the program, but incentivize producers um, to keep that supply on the medical side. Um, So, like I said, I think those were well-founded concerns by the longtime uh, patients in the program. Um, but but hopefully that and, and some of the set asides of the, the supply has to be there. There's a minimum amount that has to stay on the medical side. Um, we'll we'll keep those keep those there and, and hopefully some incentives to keep people in the program and and keep it thriving. Because, it you know, as, as Ben said, we were the, the first state to pass it back in the 70s. We we're also the first uh, state to have a state regulated Uh, medical cannabis, cannabis market, um, back after that passed in 2007, um, other states have done it before us, but we were the first ones to actually have state licenses and, and, um, have a program run that way. So, so I hope that, um, you know, that those, that those concerns are, are alleviated and that the medical program is able to continue, um, providing that medicine.
1: So for those that, that aren't in the medical program or who don't necessarily want to frequent a retail store, are, and I think we touched on this earlier, are, are they able to grow their own uh, cannabis plants? And if so, are there any limits associated with those?
2: Yeah, so they they are, and this is something that had been a, a sticking point in an earlier concession in the in the bill in previous years. But but this year, you're allowed to to grow at your own at your own residence um, up to six mature plants, uh, and and six immature plants if you're if you're growing on a staggered cycle, um, which for for personal use is is a sufficient um, a sufficient amount. For for more than one person in the household, you can have up to 12 mature plants in a in a household, um, which which I think is is really fantastic, really critical um, to um, one is is sort of a social justice, social justice aspect of this. Right. You're not dependent on, um, you know, a store the same way you can brew beer in your in your garage. but you can't you can't set up a full blown distillery, right? To do the the hardcore extraction where there's potential health and safety risks. Um, same thing with cannabis, right? You can grow your plants uh, for people that are concerned. It will still be illegal to to be doing solvent extractions. That really the type of thing that when it's done in a home in a home setting, uh, there are legitimate risks. You know, there's you you've seen it happen um, when when you're dealing with that type of thing. But for basic for the basic growing people are going to be able to do that and they're not going to have to rely on a store. Um, but not everyone wants to do that. Not everyone's able to do that. So, so they can, you know, stores are there for people who want them. But, uh, but I think that's a fantastic provision in the bill, um, to, to allow those six plants at home grow.
1: And when you're able to grow these, I mean, are you able to grow these in view of, you know, traffic and view of your neighbors? Is, is that going to cause any issues? Uh, with law enforcement?
3: I I think the legislation says that they can't be in public view. And I think a a lot of the details specifically around this um, and really a lot of the details around how we we move forward and and regulate this industry is gonna be in the rulemaking. Um, And I I, I think that uh, it was a smart move to really empower a a rulemaking uh, body to, have oversight and uh, responsibility for um, that part of of how we move into a a legal market. But, you know, and I I think that's as much for the the safety of people who wanna take advantage of the home growth provisions as as anything else. Um, And I'm trying to find the section now, but I, I do remember that it said it couldn't be, it couldn't be in public view.
1: So let's, we have this new market coming to town. We have the medical market currently in in effect. What are what are the implications on the black market? Um, how do you feel that this is going to affect it? Is it going to affect it? What are your thoughts?
2: I think the the hope is for everyone that this is that this is really going to um, you know diminish the strength of the of the illicit market and really um, you know it's it's never it's it's never going to go away. To say at, at this. I, until there's federal legalization and everyone across the country has, you know, equitable access, um, it's, it's going to be there. So, you know, to use that as a as kind of a, a detraction from the, the bill, uh, I, I think it's just unrealistic. But I do think that, um, you know, they've set the barriers to entry low enough that people who who want to get involved um, from going from the illicit to the to the legal market have that opportunity um, I think that the ability for people to do their own home grow as well um, will really, um, you know, eliminate eliminate a lot of that. But to to say realistically that it's it's going to one hundred percent wipe it out, you know, then as long as as long as we got Oklahoma and, and Texas next door um, with with their restrictions, you know, and and other places like that, it's it's not going to go away entirely. But I do think that this will, you know, will have a major impact and really cut down on the incentives, um, of, of people to be involved in the, in the illicit market.
1: Gentlemen, um, I want to thank you, uh, both today for participating in the podcast, uh, greatly appreciated. I hope our listeners, uh, learned a little, maybe a lot about the bill, pretty exciting. Um, do you guys have any closing thoughts?
2: So one, one thing we didn't get to touch on was the the sister bill to the actual legalization, and that had to do with expungement of past uh, criminal convictions for for crimes that would now be allowed under this, this legislation. Um, I know that was a sticking point for a lot of legislators uh, that said that, um, you know, they didn't want to have it all together in that. So I, you know... That's the way that it got done. It, it got done. I think that's really great that it um, people are going to be able to have those criminal records cleared um, and and hopefully address some of the you know the issues of the the war on drugs. Right. This is this is an equity issue. This is a, a social justice issue, a racial justice issue, and that that sister legislation for the expungement um, was another critical component of that. So. Really, you know, I, I applaud the the legislators. I shouted out some before, but again, um, you know, Senator Jerry Ortiz Pino is somebody who's been bringing this for years and years and years. His name wasn't a tap. he wasn't a sponsor on this one, but he was a huge supporter. Um, now, Secretary Bill McCamley, when he was in the House of Representatives, he brought this legislation forward for for several years. Um, so, so really, you know, a lot of credit to them. A lot of credit to to Drug Policy Alliance, the people there that have have been advocating for this for, for years. Um, all the, all the citizen advocates, um, the, the organizations that have, have been up there, you know, I've, I've been at the roundhouse with y'all and, and seeing the the work that people have put in. Um, and so yeah, just, I'm I'm super thrilled, you know, this is what got me into this was, uh, I was, I dealt with, uh, you know, getting arrested for cannabis possession back when I was a, a teenager and, and that really spurred my interest in it how do we make this better? And to see where things have come from, that was back in 2004, um, to see where things have come from then and, and all the hard work that people have put in for years and years to get it there, to finally see it go over the line, you know, to make it over the line. Um, credit to the governor for calling the special session. Uh, whoever, you know, got her to, to really go on that, I, I really commend them. Um, all the all the senators who who spoke passionately about you know the the need for this beyond just the economics of it, right? The economics are easy to get behind, um, but to really push it as as more than that, um, just you know, give everybody a, a lot of credit. A lot of credit to to Ben and uh, um, you know the advocacy that him and his his group has done, and the, the medical providers that have you know been doing this for a long time. Um, really excited for people to get involved you know, really excited to see what comes out of these, these rules and, and applications. And would just say, I would be more than happy to help anybody, you know, get involved that wants to, uh, that wants to take part in this industry. It can, it can be anything from very small scale to to very large scale. So there's no, um, you know, there's, there's just a ton of opportunity. I'm super excited. I think that this is a, a really solid bill. One of the best in the country, um, that's, that's been passed. So just tons of credit to everyone that, that made it happen. And here we are, you know, people, have, yeah, I, so much credit to the generations before that were, you know, fighting this since before I was born. Um, you know, so just a lot of credit to everyone there. I'm super thrilled to, you know, have have played a, a tiny part in, in this whole discussion and to have been involved and uh, um, you know, to see it get over the line. and And now we, we got a lot of opportunities. We've got, you know, a lot of a lot of fun to, to look forward to. I'm sure there will be headaches. It's not going to be perfect. Um, would would encourage everyone to be be patient and and understanding. You know, the people that are behind this really want to see it succeed. Um, so just really, you know, congrats to everyone for getting it done. Can't wait to actually see the governor put her pen to it and and sign it onto the books. Um, and and rocking and rolling. You know, come September, licenses are applications are are going to be coming in. So, um, you know, I'd be happy to help anybody out that wants to, wants to get involved at any level. So thanks again for, for having me. I, I could talk about this all day. Um, and it, it's really been a, you know, it's really been a pleasure and, and I'm glad that we have so many good things to say uh, about the bill, um, and, and what got done. So thanks for the opportunity. Um, and yeah, looking forward to, to seeing what New Mexico does with it now.
3: Everything, uh, everything Brett said, I think, um, you know, I've been working behind the scenes on lots of different initiatives uh, in the roundhouse for the last decade. And I I think this is the single most important piece of legislation that that I've seen passed in terms of New Mexico having the ability to really define and create and map out its own future. Um, I think that this Passing this bill was the, the first big hurdle. Uh, we still have a lot of work to do in future legislative sessions uh, in, in the rulemaking process, um, but getting this over the finish line is is huge for New Mexico. And I, I think we've done it in a way that, um, you know, honors our agrarian heritage, that really uh, honors the fact that New Mexico kind of looks like what the rest of the country is gonna look like in, in 20 years. And I'm just really excited to uh, help to create these opportunities to build this industry that's by New Mexicans for New Mexicans, and to not be the last in the country to, to do it. I think that lots of states are gonna are gonna have their eyes on on how we do this and how we roll this out. And um, I have complete faith. There will be speed bumps and there will be stumbling blocks, but I I have complete faith that this is the start of something that's gonna be really big and really important and really good for New Mexico as a state. Awesome, thank you, Ben, thank you, Brett. Um, I also wanna
1: thank Morgan from the State Bar and all she does for our section. I wanna thank the Cannabis Law section. Um, If you haven't joined, go join. You don't have to be a lawyer to join. Uh, thanks to everybody. And until next time, hope you guys have a great day.
0: Thank you for listening. This episode was produced by the State Bar of New Mexico's Member Services Department in the Cannabis Law section. All editing and sound mixing was done by Blue Sky e Intro music is by Kevin McLoyd at IncomTech. The views of the presenters are that of their own and not endorsed by the State Bar of New Mexico. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you.